Welcome back to the 204th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including our slow decline as the greatest nation on Earth. A article that also talks about our decline, but in a different way. It talks about the Supreme Court taking up the decision made in Colorado against Mr. Trump. And our final article talking about the mayor of Chicago and how some of his policies are probably not going to go so well for him. And, of course, we're going to end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So I've talked about the topic of American decline for quite some time, and I don't want to do it as a negative. I'm not trying to do it just to point out, oh, yeah, we're, we're declining. I always want to bring it up as, hey, these are signs that we may be declining, and it seems similar to the decline of England after, or sorry, the United Kingdom, because all of them were involved, after World War II and some of the economic situations, some of the class division, the obsession on being countercultural, all these different things I've talked about before. Do you think our decline is comparable to other nations' decline? Or is it something unique? Or are we not declining at all? I'd love to hear everybody's opinions because there's probably room for argument on all sides, and I want to hear that. So we're going to jump to an article that is definitely going to argue one way, and uh, I may be... Uh, I may not agree with all the reasons that they state for the decline, but I'm willing to at least hear them out because I am a little bit predisposed to have a certain opinion on it. It comes from the prospect, and the headline reads, A More Actively Managed Decline. So the prospect is a little bit more left-wing. So you know they're going to approach probably from like an environmentalist angle, uh, talking about how Biden might not be doing enough on the world stage, uh, the intervention in the Middle East, uh, maybe some Ukraine policy as well. There, there's a good little mix in here. And I, like I said, won't agree with all of it, but I at least want to give it its time in the sun and we can have an actual conversation about it. Quote, Washington is again backing war in the Middle East. Universities are consumed with the debate about political correctness and free speech, and liberal intelligentsia can scarcely contain its hope that war will reinvigorate worn-out Western democracies. It could be 2003, were it not that today the U.S. has outstripped all other countries to become the world's biggest producer of both oil and gas. So you can see the, the spin here. Some people would probably argue, well, hold on, hold on. We're the largest producer of oil and gas. Uh, that actually is, is a good thing. It's going to prop up our economy. It's going to provide jobs. It's going to allow us to pressure OPEC. And you can tell that the prospect's saying, uh, well, no, we're actually contributing to environmental concerns. So we're actually doing all this bad stuff on top of one other bad thing. But those other things that they're talking about, the war in the Middle East, uh, we've seen this bog us down before. That doesn't mean that certain aspects of it aren't justified and certain aspects of it aren't supporting our allies. And you can make an argument that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, so we should try to prop them up. I'm not always 100% on board with those arguments. I'm always willing to hear them out because I'm not 100% dedicated one way or the other on that issue. The one that I really, really am passionate about is the universities and free speech. So I'll definitely touch on that one a little bit more. There is a uh, paragraph that I want to read you from this article. And the other one that we're, <laughs> they're going into is, uh, well, they're actually going to use this war as a way to reinvigorate the democratic dream. And this is something that I do agree happens when you have a 
declining civilization or at least a populace that doesn't view your ideals as the best. Guess what 2001, the terrorist attacks, and the years after that were? They were a rallying cry for democracy. They hate us because we are a democracy. They hate us because of our freedom, so on and so forth. It rallied and made the idea of a democracy ever more patriotic. Uh, Yes, we're not just, it's kind of reviving what was happening during the Cold War. We're not just fighting for our own interests to protect our economic interests or to show that you can't mess with us. No, we're also spreading democracy. We're building democracies in the Middle East. And this happens when the leaders need to rally the populace around something in order to get them back in line. No, no, hey, don't criticize us in government. Don't criticize our policies. Don't take a critical look at what we're doing. Rather, remember that we're fighting for democracy and we're serving you in that aim of spreading democracy and keeping your freedom sacred. Now, is there not something to that argument? Ever so slightly, sure. And there are probably people who genuinely believe it. As a person who can be cynical and joyous on most days, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I am a little bit cynical as well. I would say maybe 25% genuinely believe that with all of their heart. Uh, Another 50% believed it with part of their heart, but they also saw interest, and 25% were completely political, cynical actors who saw this as an opportunity to uh, get what we want passed in order to justify or get what we want passed and justify it based on some other means, whether that be the war or protecting people at home, which, you know, increase the surveillance state, things of this nature. But all of those things, I've pointed out where I agree and where I disagree. The one thing I really wanted to latch onto here, which I said earlier, is the free speech on universities. So let's jump to that one. And there is a little bit here about domestic investment as well for Mr. Joe Biden. So if you want to go read that part of it, I have the link to the article in the description below the like and subscribe button. Go down there, click it, read through this yourself. There may be certain parts that really resonate with you more than others. Quote, there is a equal risk amid the jubilation of eviction of the neoliberals from the halls of power of getting punch drunk on the new planning paradigm. A new tendency has emerged to deny the existence of trade-offs altogether. Rather than doing the hard work of politics and brokering between competing public goods and investment priorities. So, what they're talking about here is the end all be all of Joe Biden's investment in the economy, so on and so forth. And you're like, Alex, how does this affect colleges and how does this affect speech? And I think it's that last part that I really wanted to hone in on, which is it doesn't do or doesn't allow the hard work of politics and brokering between competing public goods and investment priorities. It doesn't allow for the communication, the back and forth that should be enabled by our free speech, that should be enabled by allowing ideas to flow. And where does this start? This starts on colleges. It starts at universities where they limit the type of speech that you're allowed to say. They limit what you're allowed to say to everybody else, which therefore limits what you're able to think. If you're not able to use certain words or certain phrases or you're not allowed to explore certain ideas because they could be offensive, because they may hurt somebody's feelings, then guess what? You're limiting somebody's capability to actively think. And let's be clear, you you may be saying, well, hey, certain things you don't need to actually 
uh, be talking about. You don't need to be talking about eugenics policies and things of that nature. Sure, you don't need to necessarily be talking about a pro-eugenics policy that goes one way or another. You should be allowed to say it, but that doesn't mean that it's a good conversation to be had. But guess what? Maybe exploring the morality of eugenics and having different conversations about that would stoke some fears in certain pieces of the administration, and yet you're just kind of dancing around the ideas there and trying to actually evaluate them on their their merits or their non-merits, which there are no merits to uh, euthanization or any sort of uh, eugenics policies, so on and so forth. We're not trying to endorse that. What I'm getting at is in order to actually take on that topic, you have to deal with a controversial issue. And also, when you take on controversial issues, you very often explore auxiliary or uh, ancillary ideas that you develop through that process. If you limit one chance... So think about it this way. If you're the human knowledge, the human brain, the human thinking process is a river and you are wading in, you're wading through that river and it's flowing and it's going in its own way. It's carving through the mountains. It's carving through the valleys. And then you say, okay, hey, we're going to put up a dam here. We're going to limit the flow of this thinking. What are you doing? You're actively stopping it from going on exploring new paths. And let's say that these sort of policies aren't actually a dam. Because, you know, if it's an outright dam, it's just going to say, no, we're going to block all types of thinking. But say it's a, a diversion. You can't go down this path, but you can go down an alternative path. Well, guess what? When you get 100 feet away from that river that has now changed paths, the, the path that we would have taken previously is maybe a little bit different. It may have cut through one valley instead of the other, or maybe it just moved 20 feet off to the left or to the right. But you get 1,000 feet down the way, you get 2,000 feet, you get 100 miles down the way. The course of that river has changed fundamentally. It has not gone to the exact same places it would have. It wouldn't have branched off in so many different ways and created so many different tributaries in, in the way that I would kind of bring this analogy back is if you limit thinking, if you stop one direction of thinking, you are stopping all of the branches of thinking that come after it. You are completely limiting the human mind. You are forcing somebody into a particular frame of reference. You're forcing them into, I don't want to say, I don't want to say you're draining them because that's, <laughs> people can break through these. They can think whatever they want to think but you're making it so much harder. You are trying to pressure them with society, with rules, into a specific box, into a specific path of thinking that it sometimes is hard to get out of. And let's be clear, everybody has agency. You can very well get out of it. But not everybody is going to realize that that is exactly what's happening. There are some people that just go along to get along without fully understanding what this sort of limiting speech means. And there are people on the outside who say, well, yeah, no, these certain practices aren't okay. We can't allow certain things to pop up in this particular direction. Same thing with providing subsidies and banning certain other products in the free market. If you ban the exploration or you stop federal explore, uh, exploration of natural gas resources on federal land, guess what? You are hampering the natural gas industry. Maybe they find a way in 50 years to burn natural gas 
in a more clean way. Maybe they find a way to get it out of the ground in a safer way that actually produces more jobs, that actually limits the effect it has on local communities. Maybe they find an all-new type of gas or a all-new type, whole new type of fuel or a whole new type of process for refining things. There are so many paths that you shut off of innovation, of thinking, when you say, no, something is banned and we're going to force you to go another direction. And that can even go for subsidies. Subsidies are going to encourage companies to go down a very particular path. The thing with subsidies is you are just weighing the choice rather than outright making the choice for them, which I still think is not ideal, but it's better than outright banning something and completely shutting down that alternative route of the river, if we were to stick with the analogy here. And this is why I think it's important to talk about, because this pra these practices of limiting thinking, of limiting the way that people can approach certain issues, is something that's on college campuses. And if people become normalized to it, if a whole generation is totally, oh yeah, these are the restrictions that are given to me by authority, and I just, I just have to obey, I just have to follow. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to critically evaluate it. Guess what happens when they get into the world and they see another authority figure, the federal government, the state government, their boss, saying, oh no, one particular option isn't available to you. They're just going to go along to get along, rather than having a space where it is truly about freedom of inquiry. And if you inquire in a wrong way, if you have a terrible thought, guess what? You get pressured by everybody else who is also a free thinker and able to evaluate your sentiments. That's how it should be, not only in universities, but in the real world as well. Social shame is a thing for a reason, and it works for a reason. We don't need extra authority figures demanding your obedience. No, the society, the people around you, they are your check, and they should be the ones to rein you in rather than a government who quite literally has a gun at your head and says you will obey or not. No, no, no. It should still be your choice whether to be socially ostracized or not, and that's why the social system of checking you is more acceptable. Because if you can't deal with the social shame of being outcast, then you'll conform. But also, you still have the choice. You can pursue whatever means, whatever ends you want, and just deal with the consequences rather than being forced into it by threat of violence, death, jailing, so on and so forth. And I know I'm extrapolating really, really far there because this is about the decline of democracies, but I think that is exactly one of the declines of democracy. If you expand the realm for which the government can use its weapons, its threat of violence against you, you are slowly, slowly creeping away from a democracy and you're running towards authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And I'm not using those words in the sense that is used nowadays willy-nilly. I mean in the actual fact where the government controls not just, you know, the big things, not just the laws that protect other people's rights and abilities, but if you keep opening up the span for what they can regulate, what they can ban, what they can forbid, if you keep letting that Overton window shift, then guess what? Eventually, it's no longer going to be about protecting other people from you and what you're doing that's unlawful in violating their rights. It's simply going to be what you're doing that is not in the interest of the government. And that is when you run into totalitarianism rather than a democracy or even a government that is formed in the best intention to protect the rights of the people that formed it or live underneath it. 
So that's what I think the slow decline is. I think that's the end-all worst decline. And if you want to listen to some of my opinions about the decline that we're having now and how it's similar to England, I've done a few different economic uh, episodes about that, especially with the high amount of loans, the high interest rates that we're dealing with, the large amount of inflation, uh, government spending going off, going off the gold standard. I've done a few different episodes on them. I believe there's somewhere around there's one somewhere around like 150, and there's another one somewhere around like 98. Uh, if you don't want to go searching for him, I understand. But if you run into him one day, you'll be like, oh, well, okay. he he did actually talk about this before he got to that one article, and he went on this really, really long rant that seemed like it was kind of out of place. So talking about protecting people's rights, we have our next article that comes from Axios how the Supreme Court could affect the 2024 presidential election. So, obviously, the Supreme Court is taking up a few different cases right now that could affect the 2024. But the reason this article was, I would say, popularized, or at least really made it out there, is because this happened, this was published after the Colorado decision to limit uh, who could be on the ballot, mainly getting Trump off of there. And that is directly limiting the freedoms of the people who are able to vote in that primary. They're saying, no, 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 you don't have the ability to vote for this person, or at least he will not be among the main options. Now, yes, you can write him in. So is it a full, I don't want to say, uh, is it a full degradation of your rights? No, because you can still write him in. But it also falls into the idea that, well, who is going to be willing to write him in? The people that are most avidly supportive of him and the people who are kind of casually viewing and they would just vote Republican anyway and he's not on the ballot. Oh, okay, okay I guess I, I can't vote for him anymore. I don't know what's going on. I haven't been paying attention. I guess he's just not running in Colorado or something like that, which is going to be hard to imagine that some people can casually get away by not viewing this nowadays. It's going to be the talk of the town, especially if you live in Colorado, even if you're not the most politically active person. But the, it's the Supreme Court directly limiting the ability of people to vote for who they want in a sensible, easy fashion. Now, like I said, not a complete destruction of their rights, but it definitely has a weighing effect. And this is something that the Supreme Court is going to have to take up. So, like I mentioned, the Colorado's 14th Amendment ballot case. If you don't know what's happening there, I did an episode on it a little bit ago. I think I explained the really basics of it. I want to talk about some of these other ones that they've been talked about a little bit, but they haven't necessarily been covered as much, especially with everything going on in Colorado. So this one is the, uh, does Trump have presidential immunity? Quote, special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court earlier this month to determine whether Trump can broadly evoke presidential immunity to avoid prosecution in the federal 2020 election interference case against him. The former president's lawyers have argued that Trump should have immunity because he was acting within the outer perimeter, that's in quotes here because it's directly from them, of his official duties when he spread conspiracies about the election and led efforts to overturn its results. So what this is saying is, hey, 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 Mr. Trump, okay, uh, we want to pr prosecute you for what you're doing with everything with Jan 6. Well, and now the Trump's team is saying, whoa, 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 hey, 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 you know, if anything, let's stall this up a little bit. Let's Let's ask, is this uh, actually, you know, something that falls within the purview of the president? 
And if it is, maybe we can kind of say it's presidential immunity, so he can't be prosecuted for it, you know, executive privilege kind of thing. Like when you walk in to the hearings in Congress or the Senate and somebody says, well, that's a, it's actually, I can't come in. It's executive privilege. It's a privileged information. I could give away something about the inner workings of the current executive or, you know, at the end of the day, I'm working underneath the executive. We don't have to respond to you. It's one of these sidestepping tactics. I'm going to be honest. Does Trump posting things on his Twitter count as being part of his official duties as president? It's a little tricky because the POTUS account, it was actually mentioned that uh, when Trump had actually banned or I think the word was blocked people on Twitter from seeing his account and it was the POTUS account, it was determined that he can't actually do that because it's a mouthpiece of the presidency. Now, does that necessarily mean anything put out there is under the duties of the presidency? Not necessarily. Uh, but I think there's a there's some interesting intricacies there. But at the end of the day, I don't think any of that was really within the purview of the presidency, especially if you want to get really nuanced, especially during a time when he, in theory, based on everything that was happening, the votes that were going for Joe Biden, he should have at least been winding down if he takes the media's word. Now, he didn't take the media's word, and he could argue that he genuinely believed that the media was wrong, but I don't know. I really don't. I don't know if the Supreme Court's going to come down on his side or not, but it's going to be a very interesting one, because if he can't get immunity, guess what? This case is basically dead in the water, and it comes down to the Docs case that is happening in Florida, at least on the federal charges that are going to get him uh, sent to jail. And if it comes down that, nope, Jack Smith's right, he can't claim presidential immunity, then the I'm going to be honest, the Docs case probably doesn't matter because this is happening with a court in D.C., which leans left. I'm not saying that they're going to be totally against Trump just because they lean left. They could be completely practical people that are going to analyze it on the facts. But it was in their city where it happened. So even if they, it's not about liking Trump or not, it's going to have some emotional resonance. And also, the judge is a more uh, left-leaning judge. I don't want to ascribe politics, not democratic, and I don't want to say liberal, but you know, certain a little bit more left-leaning and doesn't have a party affiliation as far as I'm aware, but it's probably not going to come down in Trump's favor. So that would lock... I, I was going to say that would lock that up, and I mean that figuratively, figuratively and literally. It would lock up the case, and it would probably lock him up in jail. And then the Docs case doesn't necessarily matter as much. So... There's that, all of that one. And then there's one more case that is probably going to go to the Supreme Court, which will be of very, very, very big significance. So earlier this month, the Supreme Court agreed to take up a Jan 6 participant's appeal over an obstruction of an official proceedings charge he received for participating in the attack on the Capitol. And why you're asking, wait, hold on, this isn't even, this isn't even Trump. Well, guess what? So... If this comes up in this guy's favor, which it's interesting because uh, the argument is, well, the statute actually says the obstruction of official proceeding is, quote, destroying, altering, or concealing a, quote, record, document, or other object or attempts to do so. 
So if the, I mean, these people that went in there, they weren't actually uh, obstructing an official proceeding, which is one thing that uh, Donald Trump is being pushed on. And if they can get this overturned and it doesn't hold true, the precedent doesn't hold up for these other people that have already been convicted, then Jack's, uh, Jack Smith's precedent that, hey, this could is something that, you know, he did interfere with an official proceeding. We've seen it already happen with other people. If that falls out from underneath him, then once again, this case is probably, in D.C., could probably fall apart. And I think the reason this is more important because I think it's a stronger claim than saying that it's presidential immunity. Just because, one, because politically a lot of people are tired of, oh, presidential immunity. Oh, he didn't come to this hearing because he has executive privilege. Or they're just tired of people wielding power and saying, oh, I'm above it because I was a president, because I was a legislator, so on and so forth. At least politically, this one, it's going to actually come out better because even though it's the Supreme Court, and either way, they're not going to like what the Supreme Court says. They're not going to like the argument that, hey, I have a special power because I'm part of the government. I'm above authority versus this one just saying, no, this actually isn't a violation of this code. It, the the statute that they're claimed to have broken is very specific about documents, so on and so forth. I think that's a stronger claim. And if it comes down in the favor of the people who are saying, hey, no, we didn't actually obstruct. It's very specific here. Then Trump's going to have a better time with this one. That's just my opinion on that. But you can see where Axios is coming from. Yes, the Supreme Court is going to be very, very, very important in the upcoming 2024 election. It's probably not going to matter too much for the primaries, but when it comes to whether or not that Trump is going to be indicted and Joe Biden can wield that over his head and keep it in all the ads, it's going to be very, very important when it comes to the general. So with all that, let's jump to our final article that comes from Real Clear Politics. And if you know Real Clear Politics, they have a little bit of a right lean and You'll definitely be able to tell from this article that is, uh, well, actually, I'll just read you the headline. Quote, the Chicago mayor's hat trick of dreadful policies. So for those of you who don't know, a hat trick is three goals in one game in uh, soccer, at least. And they're saying, hey, these are the three bad policies that are not working out for the governor of Chicago. I'm not going to read you the intro paragraph. I'm literally just going to read you all the policies that they want to call out here. It is a little bit longer, so stick with me. Quote, the three policies stand out in particular for particular ridicule. Mayor Johnson wants to, quote, start city-owned and operated grocery stores in some un underserved areas. The government that wants to take on these difficult tasks is already failing at such basic, basic services as fixing potholes and policing dangerous neighborhoods. That's one. Number two, quote, the tick-to-ticket buses bringing illegal migrants to Chicago, mostly from Texas. He calls them rogue buses because they are not coordinating with the city. Giving them a ticket or even impounding the vehicles is his solution. The bus company's own solution is to drop off the passengers in the suburbs, so just a little bit further out, which immediately then send them on to Chicago. Johnson then rages at the Texas governor and never mentions President Biden. So that's number two. Number three, close down all selective enrollment magnet schools in Chicago. So these are like your top tier, really, really good schools that are going to send kids on to big universities or at least universities. They have a high acceptance rate, that sort of thing. Quote, the only ones where students actually read above their grade level. And if we judge by the likely outcomes, Johnson's policy is really designed to drive middle class families with kids out of the city. Yeah, if they're not liking, you know, the parents are like, whoa, okay, we can't 
you can't send our kids to these magnet schools. And we know that public school probably isn't as good as the magnet school. So we're probably going to try to move somewhere else. I mean, if you have enough money to send your kid to magnet schools, even though some of them are well-sponsored, you probably have enough to at least move away a little bit further out and find a different, maybe a private school or another funded school in a different municipality, even maybe a different city, depending on how um, their job is. So, yeah, this may not be good. Uh, but there's one last little part to this third policy. Quote, the teacher unions back the plan enthusiastically. They must know how good other schools are since the president of CTU sends her own child to a private school. Meanwhile, she is working with Governor J.B. Pritzker to kill school choice for everyone else. So yeah, a little bit of a shot across the bow that, oh, wow, she's a she's a hypocrite. She's uh, sending her kids to private school, but saying, no, 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 we're going to make it so that everybody else has to go to public schools. So this is the, the little trifecta. Now, uh, the one that really, really gets me is the um, state or sorry, the city owned supermarkets. So. The author goes on to make a point, which is the reason that these companies that were supermarkets had to leave Chicago and why it is making it necessary to have uh, city-owned supermarkets is because they were having high retail thefts. They were having a high rate of retail thefts. Well, guess what? If it is a city-sponsored one, what's going to stop them from stealing from there? Now, that argument may be like, well, okay, there, there could be more security, things of that nature. And you may be asking, well, even then, why is that an important argument? There's an important argument there because guess what? Guess who absorbs the cost if the stealing continues? If the people continue to take out a whole bunch of products without paying for them? All those costs in loss of inventory and loss of revenue because they're making, guess what, companies are making projections based on what they have in inventory and what they think they can sell. And if they're losing a whole bunch of inventory every single month without getting money for it, guess who's going to absorb that cost? The taxpayer. So either the taxes are going to have to go up, there's going to have to be special stipends, or they're going to have to drain the local community. They're going to say, okay, well, you know, this supermarket's only serving this four square block area, so we're actually going to drain more resources from this place that's already not doing well, and uh, that's how we're going to fund everything. Or they bring the burden to the rest of all of Chicago, and people in Chicago are like, why am I paying for a crappy store that can't even secure its own products and is always losing money in this other area when I don't even go there. So I think that's, it's just kind of hilarious and it shows the thought process, which is, well, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna bring in a, a city store. It's great intentions, but when actually thinking it through, I don't know if they've fully gone there and there probably are some policy people who have prescriptions for it. I wanna hear them and I wanna see them put into place and see if the dreamed up version actually meets reality. So. You can go read that one. It's an interesting one where they do a deep dive on all the other parts of the policies, number two and three. But we're going to move on to something a little bit more positive, which is our daily delight. And this one comes from Parade Pets. The headline is, Snow Leopard at Arkin Zoo has the cutest cat-like reaction to Christmas gifts. So, it's a TikTok. You know, I, you know how I don't necessarily love TikToks, but I'll tell you now, it is a little cute thing. And I'm just going to read you one uh, quote from the middle of it. Quote, snow leopards primarily live in mountain areas in northern and central Asia, mostly in the Himalaya regions. If you're looking for more interesting facts about these big cat breeds, read below. And this particular cat, quote, buckle up. This clip is absolutely a hoot to watch, and their reaction to the holiday joy is simply the best. 
and they're ripping apart some presents and they do a little hop and <laughs> she's snuggling with the presents. I'm sorry. I, I need to stop describing. You just need to go watch it for yourself. Uh, like I said, if you want to find any of the articles from today or any of the cute photos from this daily delight, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And the Twitter handle is down there at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. Not, you know, not scripted. We don't have a lot of quotes. It's kind of off the top of the head. This one, this last one was about uh, Atlas Shrugged. It was my personal challenge to read that throughout December by Ayn Rand. And it was a really uh, interesting book. And it really beats you over the head with some things. But it is really engaging and it creates a very interesting conversation if you're not used to Ayn Rand's objectivist point of view. So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.